Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, I, it's a delight to have you back with us, Rabbi Foreman, uh, for part two. Uh, the feedback we, we got was, was uh, tremendous, and I, I've been looking forward to this class all week, and I'm, I'm sure everyone else has as well. Uh, we've, we've been discussing it, and uh, and it really has sparked discussion on, on, on the groups. Um, and, yeah, we really want to hear a lot of insight. Maybe at the end you can tell us more how to, you know, pick up this lens that, that, and, and the tools uh, because I think it's something we, we've all been inspired by, um, and we, we want to be able to be, you know, readers of Tanakh as, as in the same way, in the same fashion as, as you are. Um, so yeah, I don't really, I don't think I need to introduce. Most people were here last week, and um, I think uh, we can jump straight into it because we want to hear you here. <laughs> so okay. thank you. My pleasure. Okay, sure. Um, I'll try to talk to, to speak to some of those issues that you raised at the end. Um, if I forget, just remind me. Okay, and uh, and we can talk about that. Um, okay, hold on for one moment to just find the best place for us to begin. Okay, great. Okay. Um, where did we leave off last week? So last week, we left off with a number of questions, and we began to make some progress towards an answer. Uh, we talked about the how puzzling it is that God would promise Shlomo wisdom. If wisdom is a function of life experience, how can it just be granted with the wave of a, a magic wand, even a divine magic wand? It would seem to suggest that God was prepared to grant Shlomo some sort of life experience, which he could sort of manufacture wisdom out of if he chose to. Uh, but the question is, what was that? Another question which we which we addressed was, isn't it strange that God tells Shlomo that he's uh, essentially wants to help him be a good king? Uh, it says, ask for whatever you want, and Shlomo says, I want wisdom because I want to be a good king. I want to judge the people properly. And um, and so God grants him the wisdom, seemingly aiming to help him be a good king. Um, but God knows something that Shlomo doesn't really know, which is that the greatest challenge of his life, of his reign, isn't really going to be judging all the individual people, but it's going to be um, it's going to be keeping the kingdom from splitting. Um, and we began to suggest a theory last week that maybe God does grant him wisdom, but not exactly the wisdom he thinks. God says, sure, I'll, I'll grant you that too, right? But I am going to grant you the type of wisdom that you need to be able to meet the greatest challenges of your life, uh, one of which is to be able to keep the kingdom together. And it's going to come in the form of a life experience. Um, and the life experience... Uh, I want to suggest is actually what Shlomo sees when he wakes up from the dream, um, which is the story of the king and the two babies. Um, we suggested last week that the king and the two babies is a premonition of the future when um, there will be a struggle over two babies, oh, excuse me, over a live baby, right? And with two potential mothers, um, and that struggle would be two kings representing two sides of the family of Israel, Rehavam on the one hand 
and Yeravam on the other. I think I even showed you that in the language of the text, as Shlomo is asking for, um, as Shlomo is asking for this wisdom to judge the people, what Shlomo says is, I need the wisdom because there's so many people, how can I possibly judge them? But if you look carefully at his request, buried in his request is um, a very sly reference to Rahavam and Yeravam fighting over a nation as if over a baby. If you remember, Shlomo says, uh, I can bring it up for you, but Shlomo says, uh, the, 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 um, uh, here I am, uh, and that language, here I am inside the, the people that you have chosen, and Amrav, right? It's got Am right in the middle of Rahav and Yerav, right? As if to say, there are these two kings, and their names overlap. Rahavam and Yeravam both have the name Am in them, and there's Rahav on the one side and Yerav on the other side, and they're struggling for this Am in the middle. Um, so it's almost as if Shlomo, there's an allusion to what Shlomo really needs wisdom for, even if Shlomo asks for something else. So on some level, we suggested that maybe the story of the king and the two babies is a premonition of the future, is a premonition of the moment that the kingdom could split, but it also contains the wisdom to address that. And the proof that we had for that was that if you begin to look at the story of Shlomo in this dream, you begin to hear a bunch of resonances with um, earlier stories in Tanakh. We mentioned that uh, this is the Haftorah for Parshat Mikates, and you hear a bunch of resonances to the action in the Yosef story in Parshat Mikates. Um, we picked up on four resonances, which did not seem coincidental. Um, the uh, essentially Vayikatz Paravine Chalom was one of them. This is very unusual language, which appears in Tanakh to describe um, Paro waking up when he has a dream, is exactly the same language that appears later to describe Shlomo waking up and having a dream. And I believe that's the only two times we get that exact same language. But it's not just that, right? It's also Vayas Mishtelech Olavadav, both Paro and Paro, right in proximity to that dream. They make the Mishteh L'chol Um And then Paro in his dream sees these two sets of cows, Batamotna Lifnei Amelach, right, that they're standing there. And Solomon, right after his dream, he wakes up and there's these two women, same language, Batamotna. And when does it all happen, right? All of this happens on the third day from Paro's birthday, that's when he makes a Mishteh L'chol And right after Shlomo's Mishteh what do we have? These two women who show up and the uh, and the, the the one of the women begins by lodging her complaint says we were both in this house together me and this other woman and on the uh, and we both gave birth in this house together first I gave birth and then and it happened three days after I gave birth and she gave birth so that's a pretty striking confluence to the story of, of Mikates and when you put all those four things together it really doesn't seem uh, coincidental. So in trying to make sense of that, we uh, we played a little game called Cast of Characters, um, and we suggested that Shlomo is actually playing a very interesting role with reference to the people in, in the Breshit story. 
On the one hand, Shlomo is like Paro. He's the one who has this dream, this very special dream, a dream that seems to forecast the future, right? On the other hand, he seems to be playing the Yosef role as well. Why? Because when in his dream God gives him wisdom, the language for the gift of wisdom was that I'm going to make you chacham and avon like no one before you, which is exactly the same language that Paro uses when talking about Yosef's great insight in interpreting the dream. He's chacham and avon like no one ever before you. Um, and, and what we concluded from there is that if Shlomo is playing, is, is that the story in Breshit seems to resonate with the story in Malachim. The only difference is, is that in Malachim there are two figures. Sorry, in Breshit there's two figures, in Malachim there's one. In Breshit there is a king and someone with the wis- a king who has a vision, and then there's someone else with the wisdom to interpret it. And in Sefer Malachim, the king is has a vision, but he's also the one with the wisdom to interpret it. He's playing both the Paro role the one, the king with the vision, and the one with the wisdom to interpret it. Um, so one of the questions that we kind of left off with is how far do you take that analogy between Shlomo on the one hand and Paran Yosef on the other? Because if you take that analogy just one step further, right, you could say, well, not only is Shlomo like Paro in that he has a vision, and not only is Shlomo like Paro, like Yosef, and that he has the wisdom to interpret it, but what exactly was the nature of Paro's vision? Maybe the nature of Paro's vision matches up with the nature of Shlomo's vision. Well, what was the nature of Paro's vision? Paro saw something that was the potential for the destruction of his kingdom, right? For a number of years, everything would be fine, right? There would be these years of plenty, but then there were going to be these years of famine afterwards, and he gets this premonition of this and of this dream, which is this wisdom on loan from God, which can save his kingdom if he can figure out what to do about that, right? If he can figure out what to do about that. Could it be that Shlomo's vision, i.e. what he sees when he wakes up from the dream, namely the story of the king and the two babies, these two women coming before him, arguing over baby, could it be that that too is a premonition of the same thing it was for Paro, i.e. something that would bring disaster upon the kingdom, but something that could be prevented if you can interpret things. In other words, things would be okay for a little while, but then disaster was looming right around the corner, which was in fact the case. Things were okay for a while during Shlomo's reign, but immediately after Shlomo's dies, things are not okay, and the kingdom is threatened, and it's going to come apart. So could it be that somehow this vision, that literally the same way the vision of the two sets of cows and the two stalks of wheat, right, the, 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 the seven stalks of wheat, that, that the lean ones destroy the other ones in Paro, that that portends disaster for the kingdom, so could it be that the two women fighting portend disaster for the kingdom too, right? There's going to be this moment where two potential caretakers over this baby, right, which is Shlomo's kingdom, uh, are arguing with one another. And by the way, the notion that Solomon himself, or that his kingdom is the baby, is also betrayed by a very chilling moment, which is that if you look at uh, right before the rebellion of Rehoboam, if you look in Malachim Aleph, you'll find a moment where a prophet comes to um, 
comes to Yeravam. And the prophet comes to him and says, take this cloak, right, and tear it. And take 10, tear it into 12 pieces. And take 10 and I'll keep two. And then he says, that's going to be you, right? 10 tribes are going to go with you. And two will stay with, with Yehuda. Now, what's interesting is that's reminiscent, right? There, there was another time when there was going to be uh, where where kingship would be torn away from a king and a prophet comes to them, right? With the same story of a tearing of a cloak. What 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 story am I talking about? When else besides Achia Shiloni do you have a story like that? Oh, Shmuel and Shaul. What's that? Shmuel and Shaul. Correct. Shmuel and Shaul, right? Shmuel tells Shaul that it's going to be the end. The kingdom is going to be torn away from him, right? And Shaul tears his cloak. And he says, that's what's going to be. The kingdom is going to be torn away from you. And now this is reminiscent, right? That That's how the kingdom was given to the house of David. But now the kingdom is taken away from the house of David through a similar sign, right? The prophet comes and again has this cloak. But what's interesting is that the first time around, the cloak was called a me'il. That's what it was called with Shmuel. Do you know, if you look in Malachim Aleph, you know what a, the cloak is, cloak is called a second time? It's not a me'il. It's a salma. But isn't it interesting, how do you spell salma? Sin, lam, and mem, hey. What else does that spell? If you take out the vowelization, that's Shlomo, right? It's as if Shlomo himself is being torn in two, right? His kingdom is being torn in two. He's the baby over which he and his kingdom are the baby over which these these uh, these potential mothers are going to struggle. So, um, yeah. So if you take the analogy now, going back to the analogy we were talking about, one of the games we were playing at the end of last week, one of the sort of um, uh, what's the word for this? We, we were sort of playfully exploring exactly how far can you take the analogy between Shlomo on the one hand in Malachim and Paro and Yosef on the other hand in, in Sefer Bereshit. And the answer seems to be pretty far because we can actually take it one step further. And this is what we were discussing in the question and answer period at the end of last week. If you take it just one step further, you might say, okay, well, let's look at Paro's dreams. Paro had these two dreams. And the dreams actually didn't just have resonance for the future. The dreams also may have had resonance in the past. Right? Now, here, um, gee, actually, I just waited into a little bit of quicksand because you guys may not have all the information necessary to process this. What I'm about to say is based upon some material on Aleph Beta, another analysis of Aleph Beta, which I briefly referred to in answering uh, Jonathan's question last week. Um, but basically, uh, the, the question was, just to give you the background necessary to understand this, let's forget about Shlomo's dream for a moment. Let's go to, let's go to, to Paro's dream, right? So the que- a question which I entertained in a series of, of talks on Aleph Beta is how did Yosef know how to interpret Paro's dream? Here's all these cartoonmen who've got a lot of skin in the game, and they're unable to figure out what the dream means. And here's Yosef who figures out the key to the dream, which is that the cows are years, right? He knows what the cows are, the seven cows, the seven beautiful cows, the seven ugly cows, seven ugly cows eat the seven beautiful cows, 
right? So he says, I know what the cows are. The cows are years. How did he know that? How did he know the cows are years? So I have a piece in Aleph Beta, which you could look up, that Yosef knew it because Paro has two dreams, right? Now, Paro's economy is based on what? It's based on wheat. And in fact, one of his dreams is about wheat. But the other dream is not about wheat. It's about cows. So if you're Yosef, you're thinking like, okay, so why is he dreaming about cows? Like, I'm the cattle rancher. He's the... You know, that's what our family does. He's he's the wheat farmer. So why is Paro dreaming about cows? And then as he listens to the dream, right, and the stuff going into the dream, he hears all this, these resonances of his own past. Like, for example, right, um, very briefly, I can take you into this, uh, into this in Genesis for a second. Um, this is going to be in 41, right, this moment when, um, Yosef is called over to Paro, right? So if, if I share the screen with you. Right? So you see this here? Yeah. So, okay. Now look at this language here. Vayishlach Paro Vayikraz Yosef labor. Right? So Paro goes and sends Yosef and he takes him out of a pit. Well, Yosef wasn't in a pit. He was in prison, but he was in, he was in a pit years later, years earlier. It's like the story of what's happening now is resonating with the past when he was in a pit. Well, when he was in a pit, what happened to him? He lost his beautiful clothes. Well, look what happens to him now. He gets these beautiful clothes. So 17 years ago, right? Or 13 years ago, Yosef was stripped of his clothes and put in the pit. Now he's taken out of the pit and he's been given these beautiful clothes. And Vayabu al Paro, the next thing that happens is he goes to Paro, to this, to this really, you know, important man. And like the last time he was in a pit and right before he was in a pit, he was stripped of his beautiful clothes. And right before that, he was sent away from a really important man, his father. And now he's taken out of the pit and he gets these beautiful clothes and he goes in front of this really important man. And then the resonances continue because Paro says, I had this dream, right? I had this dream. And the dream is inexplicable and I don't know what to do with it, but I know that you, I heard about you that you can interpret dreams. Well, what's the, if you look at what's happening now, everything that's happening is the opposite of what was happening 13 years ago in Paro's life. Here he's being taken out of a pit. Back then he was thrown in a pit. Here he's getting beautiful clothes. There he lost his beautiful clothes. Here he's coming to an important man. There he was sent away from an important man, right? Now, if you think about a really important figure saying, halom halamti, right? But I have this dream, but I don't know what the interpretation is because it's inexplicable. The opposite of an inexplicable dream is a dream that's obvious to interpret. Everyone knows how to interpret Right? Was there a dream like that before Yosef was in the pit, before he was stripped of his clothes, before he was sent away from his father? There surely was, right? Because the last thing that happened was Yosef had this dream about the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, and everyone thought they knew what it meant, right? And, and right? Father knows what it means, and father's really angry about it, right? So over here, so there, father doesn't want to listen to the dream, right? And here, there's this really hard dream to figure out that the father figure has and is telling Yosef about, right? It, it's like these opposites. And the opposites continue, by the way, with halom chalamti here, 
But you know, when Yosef had his dream, right? Before Paro had his dream, it was Chalamti Chalom, backwards, right? So it's all, it, it seems like everything's happening backwards. But as the next thing that happens is as Paro goes and tells him what's happening, so as Paro goes and tells him what's happening, Yosef continues to hear in this vision these resonances from his own life. He hears about cows that are Yefot Toar. Well, the cows that are Yefot Toar, what does Yefot Toar remind you of in Yosef's life? Who is Yefot Toar or Yefot Toar in his life? Rachel, his mother. His mother, Rachel, right? And here there are these Yefot Toar cows. You're thinking, are these Rachel cows? Like, I don't understand that. But Tirena Ba'achu, and they were grazing in a swamp, except Rashi says it means swamp, but Unkelos actually says Ba'achu means with their brother cows. So if you think about Rachel cows grazing or shepherding, Batirena can also mean shepherding, shepherding with their brother cows, that's actually the first moment of the Yosef story. Remember, when Yosef was 17 years old, Hayaroa et Achavaston, he was shepherding with his brothers the sheep. So it's like it's all coming back to Yosef. Oh my gosh, there's these Rachel cows, they were shepherding with their brother cows, and the brother cows are Sheva Parot Achirot. If we just check our math, the brother cows would be the Leah cows. Well, look how they're described. Dalot Tor Maod, Virakot Basar. Rakot is a playoff of what language that we use describing Leah? And her eyes. Her eyes, right? So these Rachel cows, there's these Leah cows, right? And then what happens next strikes them cold. The Leah cows, the Rakot cows, swallow alive the Rachel cows, the beautiful cows. And so here Yosef's thinking, oh my gosh, in my dream, they were all bowing to me. But you know what actually happened? They threw me in a pit. They swallowed me. It was the perfect crime. What Paro's dream reveals about the past is what actually happened. The, Re- the Leia cows, it was like the perfect kind, that, that they swallowed me alive. And I, you couldn't even tell that they had swallowed him alive. It was the perfect crime, right? So when Yosef's thinking about this, there's only my argument there back in that Aleph Beta series is there was only one problem. The problem with this whole, with this whole theory is everything fits except for one thing the amount of cows, right? In other words, if the beautiful cows are really Rachel cows, how many should they be? Two. 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 There are only two Rachel children. And if the Leah cows were really Leah children, how many should there be? There should be six. There shouldn't be seven. So how come there's seven Leah cows and seven Rachel cows? And then it hits Yosef, Right? And, and I didn't know the answer to this question for a while until I happened to notice, actually, um, through fortuitous circumstances, um, that if you actually look at the key words that the dream uses to signify Rachel and Leah, Yifat Toar for Rachel, Rakot for Leah, those words appear the very first times we meet Rachel and Leah, when Yaakov meets them in the Lavan story. And it says, Rachel, that, you know, Lovin says, okay, you know, name your price. What are you going to work for? Right? So Rachel, the text says, was Yifat Toar, but a Neilea Rakot. Like that's the touchstone for the dream. You know what the next Pasuk is? Right, right after it says, Neilea Rakot Rachel, Haita Yifat Toar, Yifat Marah. Vayomer Yaakov, Evadcha Sheva Shanim, Barachal Bitchaktana. I'll work for you for seven years for Rachel. And those seven years turned into seven more years for Leah. And then it hits Yosef. It's like, oh my gosh, I get it. The cows don't represent us. 
The cows don't represent me, Rachel kids and Leah kids. They represent time. They represent years. They represent the seven long years that my father worked for Rachel and the seven long years my father worked for Leah, that when we were shepherding together in the fields, us kids, it was as if the seven long years of Rachel were shepherding together with the seven long years of Rachel, right? Because when they devoured me, when they threw me in a pit, it's as if those seven long years that father worked for Rachel were for naught because I'm out of his life, right? And so he gets the meaning of the dream. And he says, whoa, whoa, one second, Pharaoh, you have two dreams, you have two dreams. You had a dream about cows and a dream about wheat. The dream about wheat is a dream about you. But the dream about cows is a dream about me. Throughout your dream about cows, there's all these resonances to my life. And if I connect the dots, I get a message. God's giving me a message, right? I have the wisdom to figure out the observance to figure out the message. And what's the message? Cows are years. It's the only way to make sense of why there's seven of them. Ah, cows are years. Well, the two dreams are the same. So I can take cows are years and I can transpose that on the story of the wheat and the bundles of wheat, seven bundles of wheat. Okay, I get it. So now I know what the now I know what the dream means. I know what the cows are. I know what the years are. I know what the dream means for you. So in other words, if you look at at this structure, what happens? What it means is that Paro's dream that Yosef interprets has a dual resonance. It has a meaning in the future. That's the dream about the wheat. And there's a meaning in the past. That's the dream about the cows. Which past? Yosef's past. Do you understand? But the dream about Yosef's past is actually what gives Yosef the key to understand the nature of the disaster in the future and the ability for him to interpret what the disaster is. Oh my gosh, there's going to be seven long years of of famine after seven years of plenty. Everything's going to be okay for a while, but then it's going to be a disaster. So he gets that. The key to that comes from the past. So the key to combating the problem in the future this dream, but the dream maps on to Yosef's past. And then the Yosef figure is able to interpret that and understand, take the key that comes to him from the past and apply it towards the future. So the $64,000 question for us is something similar going on now in Malachim. In other words, in, how far do we take these parallels between the between Paro on the one Paro and Shlomo and Yosef and Shlomo, right? We could just say, well, Paro is a king, and Yosef's wise. Paro has a dream; he's a king with a dream, and Yosef's a wise guy, right? Okay, maybe that's it. But you know what? Maybe it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Maybe it's Paro is the king who has a dream about the destruction, the potential destruction of his empire. And Yosef's the one who can interpret it. And maybe, maybe Shlomo is having a dream about the potential destruction of his empire. But he's the one who can interpret it. But how would he interpret it? If we take the parallels really seriously, maybe the answer is the same way that Yosef figured it out the first time, Shlomo has the capacity to figure it out this time. In other words, Paro's vision had a resonance towards the future, but the key to understanding that lies in Yosef's past. The theory that I'm going to suggest to you now is that exactly the same thing is going to happen in Malachim Aleph. The vision that Shlomo has, is about to have, has a resonance in the future. It portends disaster in the future. But to figure out what it means and how to combat it, the king will have to look in the past. 
Where will he have to look in the past? Into Yosef's past. The same way that a king had a dream about Yosef's past in Genesis, the king Solomon has a vision that resonates with Yosef's, the same way that, excuse me, the king had a vision that resonates with Yosef's past in Genesis. King Solomon in the Sefer Malachim has a dream which resonates with Yosef's past. And if he can figure out what it means, he'll understand how to combat the problem in the future. All right, that's the algebra here. If you didn't follow that, or if that didn't make any sense to you, don't worry about it. It'll make more sense to you in a few minutes. That's just setting up the structure for what's going to happen. If that made no sense to you, just dismiss it, and you'll come back to it, or you'll listen to the tape, and it'll be, oh, that's what Foreman was talking about. He wasn't bonkers crazy when he was saying this, okay? So let's try this and see. So I left off last week by suggesting to you that we weren't done seeing the resonances in language between the story of Shlomo's dream and the story of the two babies and Parshas Mikes. The when Parshas Mikes is the Haftorah for this story in Malachim, it's for good reason. And there are at least two more resonances, maybe more, between Parshas Mikes and the, the Shlomo and the baby story. So let's go to one of them now. Lo and behold, there's one more resonance that we're going to look at. And again, This resonance is going to take us to a key moment in Yosef's past. Let's look at it. Okay, so let me put you guys over here. And we'll put these guys over here. And we'll be able to see it. Let's share the screen. Okay. Here we are. Okay. Um, you guys can see the screen now? Great. So let's go down to the action of the story of Solomon and the two babies. So there's these two women, and they both come, and they're struggling over this baby. Right? So we had our postulate about what this means in the future. But what does it mean in the past? What does it mean in Yosef's past? So let's look. So the first woman comes forward and says, look, you know, three days after I gave birth, she gave birth. And what happened? Let's read Pasig Yutes. Then what happens? We both had these, these children, but the child of this other woman died in the middle of the night because she rolled over on the child and suffocated it. So what happened? So she got up in the middle of the night and she took my live child from me. I was sleeping. I didn't know. And she took my live child and she put it right next to her in the middle of the night. And as for the corpse of her dead child, she put that corpse right next to me while I was sleeping. So I got up in the morning to nurse my child. And I see the child's dead. But then I looked at him in the morning. And I looked at the child. I didn't recognize him. That wasn't the child I gave birth to. And that's when I figured out the ruse. But the other woman said, No, it's not true. 
My child is a living child. Your child is a dead child. Not true. Your child is a dead child. My child is a live child. But And they are arguing before the king. So the king doesn't know what to do. The king says, I don't know what to do. This one says, uh, the live child's mine and the dead child's yours. And the other one says, no, the dead child is, is yours and the live child's mine. So the king says, I know what to do. Bring me a sword. So a sword came before the king. So the king said, Cut the live child in two. And give half of the of the pieces, give half of the live child to this woman and half to the other. Kill the child, divide the body between them. So at that point, at that point, and this is the, the language that you need to look at carefully, read Parat Chafav and ask, where have you heard these words before? Where in Genesis have you heard these words before? So the woman who is the true mother of the living child, she says to the king, because her compassion overpowers her for a child. But Tamar says, she says, please my master, don't, please just, just give the living child to her. Whatever you do, just don't kill the child. Give the child to her. But the other woman says, no, that's a good idea. Split the child. Shouldn't, shouldn't be for me. Shouldn't be for her. Gazoru, split the child. At that point, the king says, give her the living child. Don't kill him. This is, in fact, the, the true mother of the living child. Okay, so let's go back to that verse that I pointed you out to. And I want to point you out to the, I want to point out to you these words right over here. Right? Where have you heard those words before? And the woman whose child was in fact the live child, she says to the king, because her compassion overpowered her for her child. Now it turns out that that language is a very unusual language. That language or a phrase like that only appears one other time in the entire Tanakh, right? And it's back in Sefer Breshit. Where else is the only other time you have or anything approaching that? Possibly Reuven, who speaks to his brothers. So close, but no cigar. It's not Reuven, right? Not Reuven, but you're getting warm. Presumably Yehuda. Passion overpowers themselves for their child or for their relative. Is it over, over Binyamin? Good. Binyamin is the one, Binyamin is involved. Who oh, uh, passion overpowers them for Binyamin? Yosef, because he can't stop crying. Uh, yeah, it's the moment Yosef first sets eyes on Binyamin. Okay, let's go back into the story and look at it. Here we are in Genesis. And let's go down to the moment that Yosef first sets eyes on Binyamin. Remember, at this point, Yosef is posing as a high Egyptian official. The brothers do not know who he is. They've come back a second time. He's demanded that Binyamin come with them. One of the questions in the story is why, right? One of the great unsolved mysteries of the Yosef story is what exactly is Yosef thinking? Why is he so determined that the brothers have to come back with Binyamin? And why, when they do come back with Binyamin, does Yosef behave so strangely? 
Why does he frame them? Why does he frame Benjamin by taking a silver cup and putting it in Benjamin's sack? And then right? So, but this is part of that strange story. So what happens? And here we go. So Yosef sees Benjamin. By Yisai Navayar, Pasukhaftes. You see this? By Yisai Navayar, Benjamin Nachiv. He goes and he sees Benjamin for the first time. Remember, he hasn't seen him for a long time, right? The last time, just do the math. The last time Yosef saw Benjamin, how old was Yosef? He was when, right when he was thrown in the pit. He's 17 years old. How old is Benjamin? We don't know exactly, but he can't be that old, right? He's five, he's six years old, right? So that's the last time he saw Benjamin, who's this, it's now decades later, he's this grown, strapping man. He goes and he sees Benjamin, his, um, he sees Benjamin, his brother, Ben Imo, the child of his mother. Was this really the little boy? That you, the little brother that you were talking about the whole time. And then, despite himself, he said, Elohim, Elohim Yachnachabani, let God grant grace to you, my son. Now, notice how strange that is for him to say that, right? It's like he's literally about to blow his whole cover, right? Like, you can't say that if you're the high Egyptian official, Elohim Yachnachabani, right? Like, who are you? What are you to, who are you to say that? But Yosef is like so moved that he can't help but bless Benjamin in that moment. He says, let God bless you. Let God grant grace to you, my son. And here are the words. Then Yosef hurried. There it is. Because his compassion overpowered himself for, for his brother. And he wanted to cry. So he went, since he was so moved, he went into the room because he didn't want the brothers to see that he was really Yosef. So he cried privately and then and then he washed his face and he comes out, right? So here it is. Almost exactly the same language as right? the only time that phrase ever appears. Now, let's just do the math and play cast of characters for a moment, right? If we play cast of characters, which is like the first thing you do when you see these parallels between two stories, right? So let's add up the characters in one story and look at, ask who they match up with in the second story. Let's go back to our cast of characters, but now in the story of the king and two babies. So how many characters do we have? We've got five, five characters. Let's see who they are. We've got a king, right? We've got the real mother of the live baby. We've got the fake mother of the live baby. We've got a live baby, that's four, and we've got a dead baby, that's five, right? Five characters. Got it? A king, two babies, and two mothers. Now, let's go into the Yosef story and start playing cast of characters. Who is Yosef playing relative to the story in Malachim when it says in Pasuk Chavav, the real when it says, that by Yimayir Yosef ki nifmru rachamav elachav elachiv. Go ahead. The real mother. Uh, like the, the real mother. Baby. Yeah. 
the real mother of the live baby, which means who is the live baby? Who is the live baby in the Breshit story? Benjamin. Benjamin. Benjamin is the live baby, and Yosef is the true mother. Now, you may come to me and you say, well, Foreman, that doesn't make sense, because Yosef is not the mother of Benjamin, is not the true mother of Benjamin. Yosef is the brother of Benjamin, right? So in what sense is Yosef the mother of Benjamin? What would you say to that objection? Um, he is um, taking over the responsibility to look after Benjamin as Rachel did when she was alive. Exactly. Remember, Rachel's dead. If you, what relationship, if you put yourself, and this is another, if you want to talk about like textual tools to use to kind of see these things, one of them, one of the tools to use in addition for playing cast of characters in situations like this is also to sort of play, what if you were there? Like actually imagine yourself in the shoes of the character at the moment. In the, you're in Yosef's shoes. How do you feel towards Benjamin? What does Benjamin feel like to you? He doesn't just feel like a brother, right? Remember what relationship have I always had with Benjamin? The last I saw this boy was when I was 17 and he was five or six. At that point, there were tensions in the family between the children of Rachel and the children of Leah. Things weren't going very well. And there were a lot more children of Leah than there were children of Rachel. And Rachel was dead. Not only was Rachel dead, Benjamin never saw Rachel. She died during his childbirth. So if Benjamin's only five or six and I'm 17, and there's all these tensions between the children of Leah and the children of Rachel, and I'm the only other children of Rachel and this other five-year-old kid who never saw his mother, what relationship do I have with that kid? Pseudo-parent. Pseudo-parent. It's not enough for me to be a child, Right. Uh, not enough for me to be a brother. I also have to take over the role of mother because he doesn't have a mother, right? His mother's dead. And that, and now if you reread these verses, you begin to see it. Which Binyamin Achiv? Ben Imo, right? The child of his dead mother. Right? Now look what he says. Let God grant you grace, my child, right? My child? What do you mean my child? I thought you're my brother. He answers, no, that's not how I viewed him. I viewed him as my child. I viewed him as this is my kid. Vicariously, I'm playing the Rachel role. So when he matches up to true mother, he really does match up to true mother in his mind. He sees himself as the true mother or the proper guardian of Binyamin. Okay, now if that's true, that begins to shed some very interesting light on the Yosef story. In other words, just to back up, the parallels which we're starting to see develop between the Sefer Malachim and the Yosef story, aside from whatever light they shed on Sefer Malachim, are going to start shedding some light on the Yosef story. Because now we begin to understand something of Yosef's motivation. If this is really true, if Yosef sees himself as true mother of a live baby, right, why do you think he might frame Benjamin and then when the uh and then when he arrests Benjamin and there's this offer to kill him, right? He says, No, 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 just I won't kill him. I'm just gonna take him as my slave. And and there's this offer that we'll all be your slaves. He says, No, no, you guys can all go home. I'll just take him as my slave. Right? What's he thinking? We now know something of his motivation. He's testing them. The same way. Might be he's testing them. 
But if he's really true mother, if he thinks of himself as true mother, put yourself in the shoes of true mother. What's the primary goal, motivating force of a mother? What does she do above everything else? She does right by her child. I have to do right by my child. And what does doing right by my child mean? Protect primarily dangerous. Educate my child. I have to feed him well. But more than anything else, what do I need to do? Protect protect the child. Protect them. Keep him safe. Would Yosef have reason to fear about Binyamin's welfare? Uh, yes, maybe jealousy by the brothers against Binyamin as they did against Yosef in the past. Exactly. Especially when all the brothers show up and Yosef recognizes them and when there's one missing. There's one missing and you count them up and you say Binyamin's missing. What do you think in your head? Oh my gosh, what have they done to Binyamin? Right? I'm not doing anything until I see this kid. And once I see this kid, I'm going to arrest him on trumped-up charges, and I'll capture him, and I'll take him, and I'll set up the Confederate States of Rachel on the other side of the Nile, and you guys can all go home, and I'll take care of Benjamin. Right? Because my goal is to keep my kids safe. That's the goal of a true mother. That's what I'm doing. What wouldn't a true mother do for a child? Right? She wouldn't lie. She wouldn't steal. She wouldn't frame, she wouldn't resort to subterfuge if that's the only way she could keep her child safe, right? I need to keep keep him out of the clutches of the fake mother. There's a struggle over Binyamin. And now let's go back to the cast of characters. If Yosef is the true mother, who, at least in Yosef's eyes, is the fake mother? And all the other brothers. All the other brothers led by Yehuda, right? Why? Because what did the fake mother do in the Solomon story? Allowed the child to be slaughtered. What did she do in the middle of the night? Kidnapped the child. No, in the middle of the night, she rolled over on her child, killed it, and left it for dead. Anything like that ever happened in the Yosef story? Uh, Yeah, possibly... um... What they did with Yosef, that's a dead child, and the exactly. life child is now Binyamin. And they... Now we understand who the dead child is. If Yosef is a live child, who's the child that got left for dead by all the uh, other brothers? Uh, Binyamin is a live child, and Yosef Binyamin's is a live child. child. Who's, the, who's the dead child? Who's the dead baby? The Yosef. dead baby, it turns out, is also Yosef. Yosef yeah. is playing two roles. Not only is Yosef true mother, Yosef's also dead baby, right? You guys left me for dead, so I now have to trust you? I'm going to trust you, right? Like, look what you did to me. I'm supposed to trust you with him? You guys don't have a good track record when it comes to the children of Rachel, right? So Yosef is like, I'm not going to let you have this, have this baby, right? You guys are fake mother. So now we begin to see who matches up with who. Yosef live baby, oh, sorry, Yosef is dead baby, but also true mother, and Yehuda is fake mother. Now, all of this, though, is only from Yosef's perspective. Yehuda has a very different perspective. If you would interview Yehuda and say, well, there's a struggle starting to play out over Binyamin, who would you say is the rightful guardian of Binyamin? What would Yehuda answer? Remember, there's something Yehuda doesn't know. He doesn't know that the high Egyptian official is really Yosef. 
So he just thinks that's a high Egyptian official who's, who's starting to get, you know, testy with Binyamin and maybe malevolent towards him. So how does Yosef interpret this story? Who's true mother in his view? You mean Yehuda? Yehuda. Um, I think it's evident from Harshad <laughs> Daigash that he sees himself as a god. He sees himself as true mother, right? I promised my father that I would take care of him. I'm, I would do anything for Binyamin, right? Who's fake mother? Fake mother is this high Egyptian official. I'm not going to let him kidnap Binyamin, right? And the irony of the story is that neither Yehuda nor Yosef knows the whole truth. There's a crucial piece of information that Yehuda's missing, and there's a crucial piece of information that Yosef's missing. The crucial piece of information that Yehuda's missing is that the high Egyptian official standing in front of him is not really a high Egyptian official, it's actually Yosef. Without that piece of information, Yehuda's justified in thinking he's the true mother. But there's also a piece of information that Yosef is missing when Yosef comes to the conclusion that Yehuda could never be a true mother. What doesn't Yosef know at this point? Go ahead. That that Yehuda made an arrangement with his father and pledged to take care of Benjamin. Exactly. All Yosef knows about Yehuda is that Yehuda was the one who left him at the pit. He doesn't know that Yehuda told his father that he would do anything to bring him back. So both of these people don't have the full picture, and they're two mothers struggling over this baby. Now the question is, who's the real mother? And they see this differently. Okay, that's the end of Act 1. Now let's go to Act 2 in the story. Act 2 in the story is the final resonance between, that, at least that I've found, between the Shlomo story in Malachim and this unfolding story in Bereshit. But you see what's happening. The story of the two babies, which is the vision that Shlomo has when he wakes up, is starting to resonate with Yosef's life, right? Not only does it resonate with the future, it's resonating with his past. It's resonating with Yosef's past, much as Paro's dreams were, right? Predicting something in the future, but resonating with Yosef's life in the past. So we've seen one way in which it resonates. There's one more way. Let's look at it. Let's go back to this Pasuk in Malachim Aleph. Batomer Isha Shabana Khayala Malaki Nikhmu Rachamel Bana. Batomer Bi Adoni. The first thing the woman who's the true mother says to the king, because her compassion overpowers herself to the child, is Bi Adoni, please my master. And that's how she begins her speech to the king. A speech that is so powerful that on its basis, the king becomes convinced that she's the true mother. Bring, please give her the live child. This is the ultimate sacrifice. This rival who's willing to snooker her out of a child, who's lying through her teeth. She, the true mother, is going to give her rival the child because that's the only way she can keep him safe. She begins that speech with the words Bi Adoni, and it turns out that the words Bi Adoni also resonate with the Yosef story, with the confrontation over Binyamin. Where do the words Bi Adoni appear in the confrontation over Binyamin? 
when your hooder comes back um, after they discover the, the cup in um, in Yemen's sack. If Act One in Brashit is the first moment Yosef sets eyes on Benjamin, Act Two is after Yosef frames Benjamin and Yehuda makes a speech to save him at the beginning of Parshat Vayigash. Because the very first words that Yehuda says, like the very first words here, are Bi Adoni. Vayigash elav Yehuda vayomer Bi Adoni. Right? And you see it right over here if we go to Brashit, right at the beginning of the next parak. Is it the beginning of the next parak? No, it's the middle of the parak, right here. Vayigash elav Yehuda vayomer Bi Adoni. I have something to tell you. Okay, and now let's play cast of characters one last time. Or one more time. If Yehuda is saying Biadoni here, who now is Yehuda matching up with in the Malachim Aleph story of the king and two babies? The genuine mother. The genuine mother. Ah, so Yehuda just switched roles in Act 2. So this is a very interesting play. The roles that people play in the play shift. First Yehuda was playing fake mother in Act 1, but now Yehuda's playing real mother in Act 2. That's very interesting. If Yehuda's playing real mother in Act 2... Well, he was real mother in his own eyes. What? In his own eyes, he was real mother. Okay, it's real just mother from, the, from the lens of Yosef, he was fake mother. Okay, real mother in his own eyes. I'll buy that. But now he's playing real mother at least in his own eyes, right? And why is he playing real mother? Is there anything about what he's doing that resonates with what the real mother does in Malachim? Yeah, he's sacrificing himself in favor of Binyamin, which is pretty much what the mother... It's the ultimate saying, sacrifice. Oh, yeah. The ultimate heroic sacrifice. What I show that... Right? In other words, what's significant here is that what the true mother does... It's not just with her speech to the king, if you really think about it. It's not just show that she is the true mother. In a deep kind of way, she shows that she understands what true motherhood is. When she's willing to let that child grow up in the hands of a rival, to never see that child, to never have that child crawl into bed with her, to never watch that child take her first steps, to lose all of that, just to keep the child safe. She is saying, I'm willing to sacrifice everything for the fundamental duty of the true mother, which is to keep a child safe. Right? In other words, if they're arguing about the child, whose child is it? It's a very interesting question when you say whose child is someone's. What do you mean by those words, whose child is it? When you say, this is my kid, when any parent says, this is my child, what do they mean with the words, this is my child? My is a very troubling word. It's very possessive. Does it mean you possess the child like a possession? Yours to do what you will with? That's not really what we mean when we say this is my kid, right? The child's going to be an independent soul. I'm a trustee of the child. I'm there to take care of the child, right? In a way, Think about the relationship of Yehuda with Binyamin. If Yehuda is struggling over this child and saying, Binyamin's my child, right? What he's saying is really what the true mother is saying, which is <clears throat> just like the true mother is willing to give up on this child, 
because I'd do anything to keep that child safe. I'm the trustee of the child's welfare. That's what it means that I'm the true mother. So does Yehuda show that he's the trustee of the child's welfare. He literally says, I am his trustee. I took over responsibility for this child's well-being, and I will do anything to live up to that responsibility, even if I pledge myself as your slave. I will make myself your slave instead of him so that this child can go home to his mother. I will make the ultimate sacrifice, go home to his father. That is what establishes him as true mother. And at this point, Yehuda is playing true mother. By the way, who at this point is playing king? The king with the sword. Yosef, surely. Yosef. The king with the sword is, an, is engineering a test of who the true mother is. Probably Yosef not. is also engineering a test. A test which he probably expects Yehuda will fail. Right? And I'll just set up the Confederate States of Rachel on the other side of the aisle. I'll take I'll take Benjamin, right? Because of course Yehuda is not the true mother, right? But if he was, what would he do if I threatened Benjamin's life with a sword, right? And ultimately Yehuda steps up and says, no, I have to be there for that kid. That kid cannot die and that kid cannot be even taken as away as a slave. He has to go home to his father. That is what he does with the Adoni. So Yosef, by the way, has now played a third role in addition to being the true mother, in addition to being the dead baby, he's now the king. Right? He's now the king. And in Yuda's eyes, he was fake mother too. So that's four roles for Yosef. Which means there's only one role that until this point, Yosef hasn't played. Which is what? The live baby. The live baby. He's played king, true mother, dead baby, fake mother even in the eyes of Yehuda, but never live baby. And that changes in Act 3. Act 3 in the story is Yosef's response to this. If Act 1 is the first moment that Yosef lays eyes on Binyamin, if Act 2 is Yehuda's speech, where at least in his own eyes he establishes himself as true mother. Act 3 is when Yosef agrees that he's the true mother, that Yehuda is the true mother. It's when he breaks down crying. And it's very interesting. When he breaks down crying, he does so because in essence he's conceding that Yehuda can be trusted, that it's okay, that Benjamin can go home with him, that I see something that I've never seen before, that Yehuda is literally willing to make this incredible sacrifice for Benjamin. That being the true mother of Benyamin is not just a matter of blood and not just a matter of emotions. It's not just that I'm the only other Rachel child and I'm the only one with emotions for him, but it's also a matter of what are you willing to actually do? What, are you, what responsibility are you actually willing to take? Are you willing to stand up and take responsibility and do whatever it takes for that child? If you are, then you can be called true mother. It's probably here that Yehuda wins the right to lead that Yehuda actually be, wins the right to be king of the family. Because at some level, to be a king means to be true mother. The nation isn't really your nation. The nation is something entrusted to you. Do you deserve that trust? Well, what are you willing to do for the nation? Are you willing to make yourself a slave for the nation? Are you willing to do anything 
for them? Are you willing to do anything for the other side of the family, for the right, for the people who aren't related to you, for the Rachel side of the family? If you're from the latest latest side of the family, if you are, then you can be king over all. And in a way, this story is addressing the first moment of potential breakup of the family. If you ask yourself, what does this story of all things have to do with Shlomo Amalek? It's all very nice that these parallels illuminate the Yosef story, but how do they illuminate the Shlomo story? Well, think about the challenge that the story of the two babies places in the future. The question is, will the family of Israel break apart? The family of Israel is not just a family anymore, it's a kingdom. Will the kingdom break apart? And we asked ourselves, what are the tools that Shlomo and his children need to understand in order for the family not to break apart, in order for the kingdom not to break apart? The answer comes in the past, in Yosef's past. The answer comes in Yehuda. It's the moment that even Yosef agreed that Yehuda's true mother. There's going to come a moment when these tensions rise again. It's just going to be a replay of the story in grander terms. The children of Rachel and the children of Leah once more, because where does Yeravim come from? He's a child of Ephraim, the child of Rachel. Where does Rechavim come from? He's a child of Leah. It's again the two sides of the family, and the question is always, how can you ever trust a child from one side of the family to care for the other side? And there's only, and there's, and there's always only one answer to that question sacrifice and service. What are you willing to actually do? It's not just, if you could show it's not just a matter of blood, but you're willing to do anything for the, to keep the other side of the family safe. That you're even, that, that you're willing to illegitimately make yourself a slave when you don't even have to be a slave. If that's what it's going to take for the other side of the family to have a good life, that is what it takes to lead. Ironically, what it takes to lead is to be an evid. To be an evid to the people to be an evid to the nation, and to be an evid to the other side of the family. If you can do that, then you can be the king, the opposite of an evid. That is the message of the story. And if Yehuda hadn't done it, what would have happened? The family would have broken apart. The baby would have split. Back then, there never would have been a united kingdom of Israel, ever. There never would have been a Bnei Yisrael. Yosef would have taken Benjamin, abducted him, set up the Confederate states of Rachel on the other side of the Nile, sent the other brothers home, and the family of Israel had been fractured forever. And the only reason it wasn't fractured is because Yehuda made this speech with Biadoni, a speech that in Act 3, even Yosef comes to recognize that Yehuda can be trusted. And that's God's message to Shlomo. If you want the wisdom to keep your family together, you've got to be Yehuda. But it's interesting, isn't it? Because who is Shlomo playing in this story? Shlomo is the king with these two ladies coming in front of him. Well, who is the king of the Breshit story? The king who makes the test. That was Yosef. Why is he playing Yosef if he's, if he's from Shevet Yehuda? The, the really deep answer to that, I think, is that what God says the wisdom you really need to have is, is the wisdom to see yourself like the other side of the family sees you. What would it take for Yosef to be convinced that Yehuda could be true mother? That's the question. Not what it takes for Yehuda to think he's true mother. 
What does it take for Yosef to concede that he's true mother? What does it take for this king who's engineering this test, who's so smug, who's so sure he's got it all figured out, to be astonished and to say, oh my gosh, now this is really the true mother, right? What does it take for Yosef, who was convinced that only he could be the one to care for Binyamin, to realize that someone else could care for him, right? It took the sacrifice and service of Yehuda. And with that, even Yosef comes around. You have to experience almost this experience that you're going through now that resonates with the past. This this past where you're channeling almost the experience of Yosef himself and understand what it was that convinced Yehuda that you could be trusted. If you understand that and your children understand that, they can keep, keep the kingdom together. Because once again, the keys to survival in the future lay in the past. And just as they did with Paro's dream, the key to the future lays in the past, the past of Yosef's story. So too, once again, the key to the future, to keeping everything together, lies in the past. If you can take this lesson from the past and apply it in the future, then you'll all survive. So what happens if you go forward into Mlachim Aleph and you look at the breakup of the kingdom? The breakup of the kingdom, sadly, Rehavam doesn't listen. Somehow Shlomo did not transmit this, this message to his son. And Rehavam is faced with this exact same problem, right? If you look at Malachim Aleph, where is it? Yud Aleph? Let me see. No, Yud Beis. So here's Rehavam. And what happens? Yeravam comes, representing the tribes of Rachel one more time. And what are they doing? They come and they say, Your father made our yoke very, very strong. It was almost like we were slaves to him, right? And could you make our lives easier than they were under Shlomo? And if so, we will serve you. So he says, I need three days to think about it. And when he does, he takes counsel with wise men who were with Shlomo when Shlomo was, was, was alive. And he says, what do you, what do you suggest? And they say, if today you show yourself to be a servant of this people, that it isn't about you, but it's about them, that you're there to serve them, if you make that statement to them, and you answer them with compassion, They'll give you their loyalty and they'll be your servants all the days of their lives. But you have to show them that you're their servants. This is Yehuda's message. And it's the message that Rehavim turns his back on. And it's because of that that the kingdom splits apart. So getting back to our questions at the beginning, right? Did God give Shlomo the answers? Did God Was God toying with Shlomo when he gave him wisdom? Or did he give him the wisdom he needed? So it's an interesting, complicated question. Shlomo in a million years at that point doesn't know what he needs. None of us do. How are we going to know what we need in life? God comes to you and says, you know, Jonathan, uh, in a dream, I'll give you whatever you need. Just ask for it. How are you supposed to know what you need? You take your best guess, right? But you don't know what the challenges that are going to face you in 30 years are. So Shlomo says, I need wisdom because I need to judge the people. So God is like, okay. That's what you think you need, wisdom to judge the people. 
but you don't realize the real challenge that's going to face you is the breakup of the kingdom, right? And it's almost like, what does God do in that situation? It's almost like God works with you and says, all right, well, you know, you want wisdom to judge the people. You're into, into judging people in a courtroom. Okay, I get that. I know that that's not what you're going to need, but let's work with that. We can work with wisdom to judge in a courtroom. I know what I'll do. I'll give you a courtroom case, Solomon, the king and two babies, and you see if you can judge your way out of it. You use all of the skill, all of the jurisprudence you possibly can to try to judge your way out of it. You'll see it's not really going to work. You're going to have to rely on other things to figure it out. The case is going to surprise you. You know who you are. You're the pharaoh with the dream, but you also have the skill and wisdom to interpret it. Can you interpret the dream? Can you see that this story is resonating in eerie ways with your past? Solomon, you're asking me for wisdom. The message I have for you, Solomon, is I don't even need to give you that wisdom. You already have it. It's been right under your nose the whole time. The wisdom you need for what you really need in life has been in your family for generations. It's nothing but the wisdom of Yehuda. You need to be Yehuda, a latter-day Yehuda in a new generation. You need to show yourself the servant of the people. And if you are, you and your children will be able to keep the family, you be able to keep the kingdom together. <clears throat> and somehow, <clears throat> the vision that he has is a vision that resonates with both the future and the past. And the keys to how to deal with the future lie with the past. And it's a message that in the end, even the wisest of kings wasn't able to to take and wasn't able to to give over to his kids. Solomon had a lot of wisdom, better in algebra than any of us, knew the secrets of botany, was able to answer all the riddles of the Queen of Sheba. But this common sense wisdom, which he surely must have known, right? Somebody doesn't teach his child. And it's tragic, right? Because if you would have interviewed Shlomo, he was said, Shlomo, do you think it's important to be the servant of the people, right? Is that what real leadership would be? He'd say, of course that's true. And he'd say, well, what about you? Do you think you did that? Do you think you communicated that to your son? He'd say, sure, like, of course, I built a base of Migdash, right? And, I, and, and I, I raised the standard of living. And of course I was the servant of the people. And yet if you look carefully in the Shlomo story, you'll find that the people felt very put upon by the taxes and by the labor. They were forced laborers. They really, really worked hard to build the base of English and the temple. And he was flirting with being seen as an imposer of slavery, which you see when the people come to Rehavam. And certainly Rehavam's view of his father was, you know, Rehavam says, if my father was, was cruel to you, I'll be even crueler. Rehavam sees Solomon and doesn't see him as the author of Mishlei, and doesn't see him as the author of Kohelet, and doesn't see him as the author of Shira Shirim, and doesn't see him as the builder of the Beit HaMikdash. He sees him as someone who successfully imposed his will upon the people, and if he did it, I'll do it even worse. And when you're, and it's when his kid sees him that way, that's the tipping point, and that's when destruction comes to the people. So I think, you know, in our lives, we're not prophets. God doesn't come to us in dreams and say, I'll give you anything you want. But it might be that the same way that God was communicating wisdom to Shlomo 
really, what was he doing when you strip everything away? He was giving him a life experience, a life experience that he could use to get wisdom out of, a life experience that resonated with the heroism of his past, the heroism of Yehuda. I wonder if that kind of stuff happens to us too. You know, if we want guidance in life, say, well, what kind of guidance can you expect from God? You can't expect from God a billboard saying, here's your big challenge in 30 years, right? It doesn't work that way. That's not what God does. We have our wants. We have our needs. We don't really understand our challenges in 30 years. But we do get life experiences, and life experiences can give us wisdom in the same way that God concocted a life experience, especially for Shlomo, a hyperpotent life experience that resonated with the heroism of his past through which he could have learned a way of living. I wonder if we get that too. Life experiences that I wonder if they also resonate with our past. That when we have a life experience that seems to resonate with heroism in our past, it's worth paying attention to. Maybe it's one of those little taps on the shoulder, one of those ways that God comes and says, look, you know, kiddo, I can't tell you what life has in store for you 30 years from now, but I can give you this experience. And you know, you don't know the future, but you do know how it resonates, how it feels when it reaffirms something which you know to be true from your past. Pay attention to that. Don't lose sight of that. That's key in your life. I wonder if that's one of the ways that God communicates to us, even through, you know, the mysteries of non-prophetic communication. So those are my thoughts I leave you with. Um, and uh, I thank you for, for hanging out with me. I realized I didn't get into too much about methodology, of, uh, again, how I arrived at this. But if you like, I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit. But that's, that's the end of what I have to say here on Malachim and, and Genesis. Wow, uh, that, that was captivating, Rabbi. Uh, I feel like all these messages embedded in, in the narratives and the stories that we've touched on are, are messages we can, we can all apply to our own lives um, and isn't just something interesting. Um, apart, obviously, from the insight that it, it's really given into, into these texts that maybe some of us have, have looked at before, but with that depth now, and it's unbelievable, really wonderful. Um, so thank you, thank you so much for sharing that with us, and, and we really look forward to have, having you again and, and analyzing uh, different texts. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't know if anyone has any questions, and also in, in terms of time, I'm, I'm aware. So you stop it whenever you want, uh, and take as many questions as you feel you can. You have time for. Yeah, sure. I'll hang out for a little bit. I'll just address very briefly the question which you started off about methodology. You know, the way I presented this, again, and I mentioned this last week too, but the way I presented this is not really the way I discovered it. So there's a certain almost slate of hand here, right? Because it took me years to put this together. It wasn't like one day I opened up Malachim and this is what came to you. And and, and you kind of need patience with this, right? You see something. You see a little puzzle piece. And I think as I mentioned to you last, you know, last time, um, you know, I had originally seen some of these resonances. I think I told you that. Um, the Nichmu Rachameh al-Banah and Bi'adani, but hadn't, and I, I kind of saw those other things about the dream, but I didn't know what to make of them. And only much, much later, um, you know, years later, was I able to come back and make sense of how it was that Shlomo resonated with Paro and resonated with Yosef. And even so, it, it, it's tough. I mean, look, um, these stories are mysterious. There's no question about them. Uh, if you would ask me, is this, is this the shot of what's going on, right? It's an interesting question. I, I wouldn't say it's drash, but I don't know that it's shot either. It's a, it's a deeper layer, right? There's no question that it's a deeper layer. Is it remez? Is it sewed? I can't tell you exactly what it is, but it seems to be real. 
And I think you, you have to have patience with yourself when you're picking up on that stuff. It's, it, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing that the Torah reveals itself slowly and over time, and you never see the whole picture. And the, one of the key tools that you need is also a little bit of humility. You've got to be able to say, okay, I see this. I, I see there's definitely a connection here, but I don't know exactly what it means. I, I have an inkling of what it might mean. I, I can speculate, right? But I, I'm, I'm grasping for more evidence. And at some level, you never quite see the whole picture. I'm pretty convinced that even what I've told you today here is not the whole picture. If you, uh, I, I hope that I'll see more of it over time. It's a partial picture. Um, and, you know, sometimes you, you, uh, you, you make do with partial pictures. But when you're looking at deep things, partial pictures are meaningful too. Um, so that, that's my real quick answer to, to, uh, to methodology. But again, if I, one interesting way to, to, you know, and maybe we can do this sometime, but, you know, another way to present this class would have been instead of presenting it the way I presented it, which is, really, what do I think the most logical way through the material is? Another way I could have presented it to you was in chronological order of what I saw first, second, and third, right? What I saw, which would have been a much more circuitous route because you don't always see the most logical thing to see, right? Sometimes you blind yourself to the most obvious things. So I thought it was easier to follow this way, right? But it's deceptive because it's not the way I saw it. Right. You sometimes you pick up things that, that are really at the end of a story and you've got to ask yourself, well, what was the beginning of that story? So um, that's an important thing to do, too. Yeah. If anybody has any questions, I'll do my best to evade them. I have a question. Well, I had a question, but I think I found an answer. And uh, yeah. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. All those connections are amazing. Um I was just thinking you were saying that God said the kingdom would be split, but um, basically because um, Shlomo didn't pass on the wisdom to his children. Um, oh, sorry, you were saying that, but, but God says explicitly in the Pesukim that the kingdom would be, would be split because Shlomo kind of strayed a bit in his um, later years in terms of idolatry and things like that. So I thought that was a problem, but then it made me think maybe on the flip side. So when you were saying that uh, Rehavon, um decided to follow the advice of the youngers, people rather than the elder, maybe there's a connection to that. Maybe maybe the fact that he saw that his father strayed in his old age, how can you trust the older people anymore? And therefore that's why he turned to younger. Therefore there's like divine providence, but it's also that the wisdom kind of got messed up because of what he saw his father do. An interesting theory. But the point that Rob is raising is a very interesting point. And it's a potential problem with this theory. Right. So let me just raise the, the issue. Rob's question is, OK, this is all very nice, but this suggests that the key to keeping the, the, the family together, the kingdom together, was to act as Yehuda, a latter day Yehuda. But seemingly that ignores what God himself says at the very end of Shlomo's reign, where he says that the reason why the kingdom is going to be split is because you your heart strayed from me and you allowed your wives to worship about Zara, Right. And. You worshipped about Azar, you built altars for your wives, right? And Chazal have a hard time understanding how that could be, because he didn't really build the altars, but he allowed the altars to be built, right? But whatever that was, that seems to be what God says is the reason for the split. So um, if so, 
how do we understand, how does that jive with this whole theory or does that destroy this whole theory? It's a great question. So I have a theory about that question, but um, to really elaborate the theory would take an entire other hour. So I won't do that now, but what I will say is the the direction of an answer to that, right? There's too much here for it not to have some relationship to truth. The only question is, right, sometimes it's like when you're putting a puzzle together. Even if you don't have all the pizzas, you begin to see what the picture is, right? We've begun to see what a picture is. You don't just discard the whole puzzle because you can't figure out where a few pieces go. On the other hand, it's a serious concern. What do you do with something like this? So I want to actually suggest that the direction of an answer to this, I think um, the, the answer really is only apparent if you really go through all the entire story of Shlomo from beginning to end, really from chapter three through chapter 12. In you really become familiar with the Pesukim. You see <clears throat> that of all of Paro's wives, foreign wives, oh, sorry, of all of Shlomo's foreign wives, the most significant of them, the one who's almost like the same way that Yehuda is the leader of the brothers, there's a leader of those wives, of those foreign wives. Anyone know who that is? Of all his foreign wives? It's Bat Paro. It's the daughter of Pharaoh. He built a palace for the daughter of Pharaoh. And ultimately, it says he's led astray by her and the other wives. He has this very interesting relationship with Paro, with Paro and Batparo. It goes all the way back to when he first marries the daughter of Pharaoh. You know when he first marries the daughter of Pharaoh? Right before he has that dream. You go look at that dream. I'll just show it to you really fast, right? Here's the dream. Look what happens right before this. Read that verse carefully. What strikes you as odd about just that single verse, Aleph? Just those words. How are they strange? He didn't get married to Paro. He didn't get married to Paro? What do you mean, Vayitchaten Shlomo at Paro? Say, Vayitchaten Shlomo at Bat Paro. What do you mean he married Paro? It sounds like he married Paro through taking Bat Paro. Almost as if what Solomon's real play was not because he was so in love with Batparo, but what was he trying to do? Make an alliance. Make an alliance. He wanted a military alliance. He wanted an empire. And the way that kings solidify empires sometimes is marriage to other kings. What he was interested in was Paro, not Batparo. It's as if he married Paro by, mar- by taking Batparo. Now, Alliances are dangerous. That language by Yitchaten in Tanakh is a very unusual language for marriage. Almost always marriage is by Yikach, not by Yitchaten. Where do we have by Yitchaten and Chumash? That Hitfael language for Chatan to signify marriage? In the Parsha that says, don't marry foreign wives. Lo Titchaten bam. 
as if the Torah is telling you by using this language, this was problematic, right? This is exactly what the Torah was trying to avoid, right? Social relations between you and the other nations never go well, right? If you marry into their families, you're going to be serving their gods. If you are interested in empire, and empire means being the son-in-law of Paro because you married his daughter, that's dangerous. Now look at the end of the verse. Vayivia Alir David. So he brings her to Alir David. Why do you think it says Ad Kalota Livnot and Beitovit Beit Hashem? Before he finished building his own palace and the house of God. Then Chomat Yushlaim Savit. So he hadn't built a palace for himself and he hadn't built God's house. So he hadn't built his own house. Who cares about that? Well, remember the story of the king and the two babies? And so it's a lack of sacrifice, maybe, or something. If you go to the story of the king and the two babies, which is right after this, look at what the women say. Me and this other woman, we were all in one house together. Me and she, we both gave birth in this house. Right? Next verse. We were both there. There was no one else in the house except for us two in the house. Two women in one house. Go back to the story. Solomon marries Bat Paro and brings her to your David before God has a house and before he has a house. Which means what's his house now? Just some sort of temporary domicile. Where's God's house? God doesn't have a house. Is it the whole Yerushalayim is their house? Well, keep that in mind. Look at the next verse. And Shlomo loved God. Now, Vayahav is an interesting language. That's the language we use for romantic love. Right? He passionately loved God, Shlomo. Okay, do you see something strange happening in the first three psukim here? Shlomo marries Paro, so to speak, by taking the daughter of Paro. There's no house for God, and there's no house for Shlomo. And then Shlomo loved God. Do you see a love triangle developing? Who's in the middle of the love triangle? Shlomo. Who are the rivals for love? Two parents who are rivals for love. One heavenly parent and one earthly one. Why is Shlomo marrying Bat Paro? He wants an alliance with his father-in-law, Paro. So one parent figure is Paro. But who's the other parent figure that Shlomo loves? Hashem. God. Two parents struggling over a baby. Ah. But the baby is Shlomo. It turns out there's a third resonance of this story. Not just does the story of Shlomo and the two babies resonate with his future, and not just does it resonate with his past, with the Yehuda and Yosef story, it resonates with his present. It's what's happening now. He put himself in a love triangle. He's a baby being struggled over by two parents. Two parents seeking custody of him. Are you going to be a Paro-like person who has an allegiance with Paro and you see the keys to your success in life as 
as your, your relationship with Paro and the other kings in the area? Or do you see yourself as loving God and the key to your success is your relationship with God? Shlomo is stuck between them with two parents fighting over him. And right then he has the dream. And right then, God gives him the story of the king of the two babies. It's as if the king of the two babies is a warning story, right? Do you really want to be the the baby over whom two parents struggle? And what's the job of a baby over whom two parents struggle? Well, if you're a baby who can't figure things out, then you're a baby who can't figure things out. But if you're a baby with sentience, if you're a baby who can figure things out, what's the obligation of a baby who's being struggled over by two parents? One fake and one real. Making peace between the parents? If one's fake and one's real... Uh, choosing the real one. Choosing the real one. Indeed, think of how the Yosef story ends. Remember we said how there were four... Yosef had four roles, but never the fifth. Never live baby. Turns out that he does have the live baby role at the very end of the story. Because what's the first thing he says when he reveals himself, when he's so overcome by Yehuda's speech in Act 3? You know what he says? Ani Yosef, ha'od avichai. Is my father still alive? Now he knows his father's still alive. He had asked the brothers about his father's welfare many times. Why is he asking the question that he already knows the answer to? Because all the other times he says, Mashlom avichem hazakem. How's your old man doing? For the very first time, he says, Ha'od avichai. You see, dead baby, the one left for bed, dead, when he reveals himself to his brothers, the minute he reveals himself, he becomes a live baby. They realize that, oh my gosh, he's a, there's another live baby here. What's the job of live baby? To figure out who his parent is. Well, who could be the father figure for Yosef besides Yaakov? Who else has taken care of him? Who else has taken care of him? Yosef is also a baby struggled over by two parents. But Yosef chooses the real parent. Ha'od avichai. Is my father still alive? I'll rejoin the family. My destiny lies with this family. And that's what kept Claudius all together, the choice of the true father. So the challenge for Shlomo is what about you, Shlomo? Is it Paro or is it God? Now here's the danger if it's Paro or if it's God. The danger is, and this is speculative, but I think it's, you know, the way I see it. You know, when God comes to Shlomo in this dream, right after he marries the daughter of Paro, isn't it interesting that God says, ask for anything, I'll give it to you. I'm God, I can do anything. Ask for anything, I will give it to you. Anything you want. Shlomo asks for wisdom because he thinks he'll have him. God's like, oh, sure, I'll give you wisdom. And I'm so impressed with you that you asked for that. I'll give you all the other things, fame, fortune, everything, right? I'll give you a lot of money. I'll give you fame. I'll give you everything. Now, here's the thing. Do you think it was really great for Shlomo that he had got all that? Fame like no one had ever had. Fortune like no one had ever had. Success like no one had ever had. Wisdom like no one had ever had. What's the challenge of having all of that? How do you not get corrupted by that? 
How do you not get corrupted by all that power of being the richest man in the world, of being everything, right? And it's like you ask yourself, what kind of parent takes a child in a candy store and says, hey, baby, I love you. Take whatever you want. You ask for anything and I'll give it to you. And then when the child says, I'll have that, the father's like, no, take everything. Take the whole store. Take all these things. What kind of parent is that? What's the parent trying to do? He spoils the child. Parents spoiling the child. Now, why would a parent spoil a child? Most parents know it's not a good thing to do. What kinds of parents spoil children? That's some incompetent ones, probably. What? Not very well um, trained, incompetent parents. Could be. But what if you have a really smart parent who spoils a child, like God, who's pretty smart and knows something about parenting? Why would even the best parent sometimes resort to spoiling a child? In what sort of extreme situation would you do that? When two parents are at war with the heart of the, for the heart of the kid. If I'm at war with another parent, and I and I'm God. It's like, what can I do to win you over? I'll give you anything. <laughs> what, what do you want? It's almost like Shlomo is forcing God into the position of spoiling parent by setting up this love triangle. Well, I love you so much, God, but but Paro and Bat Paro. So it's almost like there's this very dangerous situation. It's dangerous because it's dangerous in terms of how God's going to relate to you. And it's also dangerous how you're going to relate to God. Because if a child is being competed over by two parents, what's the child's proclivities? What's he likely to do? If I give a gift to one parent, what's going to happen? The other parent's going to get mad. So what do I do? I overcompensate. And I'm especially obsequious to the next parent. But then that gets the other parent mad. So I'd be especially obsequious to him. In, In the end, it corrupts my service of both parents to be struggled between them. That, I believe, is what God is telling him. You can't ride two horses at the same time. You can't be struggled over by two parents. You have to choose. You have to choose your true mother. You have to be like Yosef, who chose his true mother. Right? You think you're the king. Yosef also, also thought he was the king. At the end, he was the, he was the live baby who had to choose who his mother is. You too. You're not just the king. You yourself are the live baby. You have to choose who your true mother is. Is it going to be Paro? Is it going to be me? And so what God warns him at the end of his life, if you continue, if that you be very careful, right? Because if you stray, it's all going to go down the tubes, right? These two things are connected, right? It is if you fail in the two baby story, if you align yourself with Paro's values, if you leave me, right? and you obsequiously serve me incorrectly, you can end up imposing such high taxes on the people because you want to make the most wonderful house of God for me to keep me happy while you keep Paro happy. And what's going to end up happening? You're going to be the servant of all the parents in your life, Paro and me. You're going to do everything right. But who's the who are the people whose interests you're going to neglect? The people's interests. And you're the real servant of them. So that's how I think the, the stories play together, right? 
that there's something about the dangers of how Shlomo worships God vis-a-vis the others, the other competitors, right, which relate to how he deals with the people as well. It's a longer schmooze than we have time for now, but that's the beginnings of it. All right, gentlemen, it's been great hanging out with you. We'll have to do it again. Thank you so, so much. We've gone really over time, but it's, it's been a pleasure listening to, uh, you know, how, how segued into, into other discussions. But um, thank you so, so much. And we will be in touch. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining. And have a great rest of the day. Uh, or good evening to, to the others. Okay, excellent. See we'll, you send you the, we'll send you the recording, Rabbi, as well. Oh, please do. Yeah, both of you could. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Okay.